Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, The Ministry of Our Lord, with a message entitled, God's Ordering of All Things. So turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20, verses 15 to 19, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. There is a passage in Romans 9.21 that has often made people upset. See, that passage simply says, Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Well, the context of the passage is about God's mercy or God's compassion. God would offer Pharaoh no compassion and only wrath. Why? Has the potter no right over the clay? Now, I know. We argue that he doesn't have that right. You know, we have the right to direct our own lives, and then, only then, does God have the right to make his choice. After all, that's what justice looks like to us. Now, I don't intend to solve the riddle of Romans 9 here, but I do want us to remember a basic principle. When it's said and done, says God, I do have the right over the clay. I'm the potter. My rights over the clay are absolute. Now, for our purposes today, I'm not going to address the sovereignty of God over all human beings. Rather, surprisingly, I'm going to address the sovereignty of the Father over the man Christ Jesus. So please remember when we speak about Jesus that, yes, we do insist that he was fully God from eternity past to eternity future, and therefore, as God, he has always been fully equal to the Father. But as Paul tells us in Philippians 2, that the Son became a man and did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped or as a treasure to be exploited, but rather as our example, he submitted himself to the Father and became obedient to him all the way through to death on the cross. Now then, that's what we want to discuss. Does the Father then, as Lord and God over the man Christ Jesus, does he not have the right to deal with him as he sees fit? And since the answer to that is yes, what would then, after we're done our Bible teaching today, what would then be the point of application? Would it not be that we should willingly acknowledge the sovereignty of God over our lives, even if the potter should then choose for us a pathway that might involve great suffering and even more? Would we then, as the clay, Would we then want to lift up our voices in complaint to God and cry out to him, you have no right to do this? Here's what we're doing today. But before we go any further, let me also add that as the Father found full delight in the Son, so also the Father finds full delight in us who have been purchased by the Son and who have been made to be his own. So let's begin then with where we left off in our study. Jesus has just finished telling the story of the labors in the vineyard. It's a parable where those laborers who worked a full 12-hour day, they were paid what they were promised, but then those who showed up at the end of the day and then worked for one hour were also paid the exact same amount as those who had worked for the entire day. In response to this shocking development, the owner of the vineyard makes a remarkable yet, when I think about it, a very logical statement. Matthew 20, verse 15a says, Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? See, that statement, that I can choose to pay the guy who showed up for one hour the same amount as the contracted pay of a full-day laborer, that statement sounds so much like the statement of Romans 9.21. Whether it's the potter who has absolute right over the clay, 
And the owner, who has a vast vineyard, who chooses to be overly generous to a group of one-hour workers, that statement that God has absolute rights over mercy and blessing and all other things, it's that which often grates the modern mind. I've heard it from my own kids, and although I think I've forgotten it now, I suspect I said it when I was a kid. I said, it's not fair. And I do remember what I said to my kids. I I said to them, look, your mom and I are attempting to be fair, but fair doesn't mean we're going to treat all of you the same. But in the parable that Jesus told, the point is slightly different. First, it is God's right to dispose of that which belongs to him in the way he has chosen. And then Jesus says the owner of the vineyard, who, as you know, represents God in this story, asks the workers another question. Do you begrudge me my generosity? Do you think you have a case against me that I am overwhelmingly and surprisingly good and gracious to someone? Would you stand as judge over me, telling me how to use my resources or dictate to me how I am to administer that which is mine? You know, but now, as I've said, the next place we're going is not about how God blesses his people or how God determines the destiny of his people but rather how God determined the destiny of Jesus. And so with that in mind, let's read Matthew 20, 17 to 19. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. You know, I put this under the heading of how the Father determined to treat the Son because this is not the first time Jesus mentioned this. The first time was back in, in Matthew 16, 21. You know, it says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And you might remember that on that occasion, Peter took Jesus aside and rebuked him for saying that telling him such a thing would never happen. And you might also remember that on that occasion, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. I mean, Jesus knew that Satan was inspiring Peter to try to dissuade him from going to the cross. And then Jesus told his disciples that whoever wanted to save his life would lose it. Whoever was willing to lose his life would find it. See, they mustn't think that Jesus wasn't going to go through a blinding whirlwind of suffering. He would go through that. God had chosen that pathway for him. And then Jesus mentions this matter a second time in Matthew 17, 22 to 23. And there that passage says, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. So since he's now mentioning this a second time, they're distraught, they're greatly ill at ease, and some might have been on the verge of panicking. I mean, if that's what's going to happen, what's going to become of us? And what's going to become of you, Jesus? And, And why then are we so determined to keep on going to Jerusalem at all? And so now we're in Matthew 20, and Jesus is mentioning this matter a third time. And please notice that he's more detailed than he's ever been before. Uh, First, would you notice that he tells them that there's going to be a trial. You know, I'm going to be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes. Back in chapter 16, he does also mention the elders of Israel. And when Jesus uses words like this, there, there can be no doubt. He's speaking about the Sanhedrin, about the Jewish ruling body, what I've called the Jewish version of the Supreme High Court. 
the highest court among our people are going to arrest me, and it is they who will pronounce a death penalty on me. And second, notice that Jesus says that he's going to be handed over to the Gentiles. That was because the Jewish ruling authority could not actually carry out the death penalty. And so we see Jesus predicting that the actual sentence of death would be carried out by the governing Roman authority. And then third, would you also notice that Jesus said that the Romans wouldn't simply condemn him to death, but rather they would abuse him at first. He said that he would be mocked and flogged. And of course, in due time, that's exactly what did happen. The Romans would strip him naked. They would put a robe of scarlet on him. They'd put a crown of thorns on his head, and then they would fall before him and mock him as the king of the Jews. It was all in this perverse dance of fun and mockery. What a joke is this Jesus. And notice Jesus says, that's going to happen. And then fourth, notice that Jesus said that the form of the death penalty would be crucifixion, which is the worst, most cruel penalty of death that the human race has ever devised. It's it's a thing of cruelty beyond understanding. And then fifth, Jesus said he would be raised on the third day. And so five very detailed predictions about what lay ahead of him in Jerusalem. Now, he didn't just simply say, you know, things might just go wrong when we get there, so brace yourself. It might be the worst possible outcome. It's not that at all. And with absolute certainty, these five things are going to happen to me. And why? Well, Isaiah 53 verse 10, that, that famous prediction of the sufferings of the Messiah says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, that is God, has put him to grief. That is, Jesus predicted the coming sufferings because he knew that the one, the potter, who has rights over the clay, had absolutely determined in advance to crush his son. Can you hear the voice of the vineyard owner saying, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? This month, we celebrate the commitment of our monthly partners with the launching of a new monthly partner initiative, the 1119 Fellowship. Based in Deuteronomy, the 1119 Fellowship is critical to our continued efforts to share the gospel with a new generation and to help teach in a way that can be trusted and that will build a firm foundation for a life in Christ. As of this past July, we celebrate 674 monthly partners, all committed to sustaining and growing the mission of Bible teaching you can trust. In the months ahead, we're asking you to join our monthly partner 1119 Fellowship as we march toward 1,000 participants. Join us this month, become a part of the 1119 Fellowship, and for more information or to sign up today, visit backtothebible.ca fellowship or simply give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. Together, let us ensure that the Word of God is being declared to a new generation. You know, this conversation about what was awaiting them in Jerusalem took place, as Matthew, as they were going to Jerusalem. You know, we do know, according to the other accounts, that Jesus had been in Jericho, We also know that according to the geography of the area, the pathway from Jericho up to Jerusalem was a very steep path, and it runs through some very barren desert, and so I have to assume it was a very exhausting walk. 
everything about the agony of that steep uphill climb and the barren countryside through which they climbed spoke of death and suffering, and I can't imagine a more gloomy climb. And of course, there's a contrast. The crowds going to Jerusalem in time for the Passover had already been convinced he was the Messiah. To them, this was a joyful time. It was a time, you know, in which the fulfillment of the ages was about to be accomplished. The Messiah was about to reign, and Israel would be free finally, finally. I mean, what a contrast between the gloom of the conversation and the expectation of the masses. That brings us to the point. Why was Jesus talking about this? Why not let the events simply unfold? And you see, part of the answers are found in the Gospel of John. You know, for one, why was Jesus becoming increasingly more detailed in what lay before them? You know, John 16, verse 12 records Jesus telling the 12, you know, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. That is, Jesus was giving the disciples only as much as they were able to bear. It was so very difficult and painful for them to take this matter in. But why make the predictions at all? I mean, after all, let the events unfold and explain it to them after it's done. See, the reason I raise this is because for many of the difficult things that I've gone through in my own personal life, you know, I actually counted a blessing that I didn't know most of these things before they actually happened. See, I don't think I would have been able to endure it if I had known what was coming. And when I think about the future, I also know that because of the good pleasure of God, he has hidden most of my future from me. So again, because this matter causes so much distress and it was so painful to hear, why is Jesus telling it to them now? Well, look at John 14, 29. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. Or look at John 16, verse 4. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. And the point that Jesus was making by speaking about this matter is to let them know that these things were according to God's predetermined plan. You know, in our day, there are those who argue that the Father crushing the Son, or arguing that the Son who became our sin-bearer, so that the Father punished him with the punishment that we rightfully deserve. This thing, you know, this thing we call the penal substitutionary atonement or that Jesus was substituted for us, that he paid the penalty that was rightfully given to us. This idea is to some an abhorrent idea. What father, they ask, would punish his son for what others did? Any father, they say, who would treat his child this way should have the child removed from his house. He should be charged with child abuse, they say. Indeed, the idea from Isaiah 53 verse 10 that it was the will of the Father to crush the Son. This leads to a horrible view of God, they say. But of course, the crucifixion didn't just happen, did it? It was predestined to happen. That's what Jesus was repeatedly telling his disciples. God had already determined it. Indeed, later, after Jesus had been raised and ascended into heaven, according to Acts 4, 27 to 28, this is what the apostles believed. This is what they taught God's people. They said, for truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Yeah, God had willed it. Yes, is it not true that he is allowed to do as he chooses 
to that which belongs to him. But then, lest we should think that God is capricious and cruel, no, no. The death of Jesus, God demonstrated in that death both his righteousness in showing us what he thinks of sin. And also, in that same act, he has offered mercy and forgiveness to all whom he has called. Look, when God does what he wills with what belongs to him, what God does is something so marvelous, it staggers us. What glory, what mercy, what grace. But, and this is the point, just because God demonstrates his glory and mercy in grace in what he does, that doesn't mean that what he ordains will not include the cup of suffering. Even while Jesus knew that the Father had chosen that he should drink the cup of suffering, yet still, he did pray, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup be taken from me. Even the sinless Jesus didn't relish the idea of suffering. He was overwhelmed by it. Very well, that's the lesson we're to take from this, the third prediction of Christ's sufferings. The father who's the potter has chosen to take his beloved son and to crush him. And that is the gospel. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He, the sinless one, became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Yes, it really did please the father to crush his son, not because the father is a child abuser, but rather because the father knew that in the sufferings of the son, he would bring home many sons and daughters to glory. This is the wisdom of God, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Now then, to the point of application. The sufferings of Jesus are not only the story of our salvation. These sufferings are also the story of the life that God has called us to live. God also ordains sufferings for his own children. Since it's not been a great deal of time now since our beloved Dr. J.I. Packer has passed away, one of the great Christians of our time, I, I thought I'd tell a little story from the childhood of Jim Packer. I'm not sure how old he was, but I, I know he hadn't yet reached his 10th birthday when he was being chased by some bullies from his school. Packer ran out into the street to get away from them, and in the process, he was hit by a truck, and it caved in portions of his skull. That's the explanation for the misshapen head we always saw when we saw pictures of him. But because of this accident, doctors put a plate over the top of his skull on the outside to protect his damaged skull. And because of this, sports and all the things that young boys love to do was kept from him. It was a horrible accident. Surely God had nothing to do with that, or? You know, because of the nature of his predicament, Packer became a bookworm spending unusual amounts of time in the library, learning to read and to treasure books. And then another event occurred. On a certain birthday, the young Jim Packer had wanted to get a bicycle. I'm not absolutely certain why his parents didn't get him the bicycle of his dreams, but perhaps it was because of the previous injury and their concern over his well-being on a bike. But on that birthday, in spite of the many hints that Packer had left for his parents, the bicycle never showed up. In its place, a typewriter. A typewriter was a much better gift for a young fellow who was not as active as other boys. And J.I. Packer began his career as one of the finest theologians of our day by using that typewriter to great effect. It was the perfect gift for a man whom God had chosen to teach us his truth and to introduce us to such treasures as his books, Knowing God, evangelism and the sovereignty of God, the quest for godliness, and that wonderful book, Weakness is the Way. But for myself and others 
whose preferred Bible translation is the ESV or the English Standard Version. It was J.I. Packer who served as the general editor of this marvelous gift of an essentially literal Bible translation. I don't know if J.I. Packer would have loved books and learning had he not been hit by a truck on that fateful day. But I do know that Romans 8.28 teaches us that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And if I'm right about it, that the accident of that day set the trajectory of his life that brought so many blessings to the church of Jesus, then let me say this. I'm thankful that in his providential designs, God should so have arranged it for such sufferings to produce so great a servant. Here are the words of God. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? That's what God did with his son, Jesus. And for all of us who have no appreciation for the sufferings of Christ, nor for the sufferings of his people, these thoughts may seem overwhelmingly strange. But the great and awesome God and loving God has so ordered things that all things should bring him glory and that they should serve our own eternal and long-term good. What marvelous grace flows from a God who orders all things. John, thanks so much, you know, because I think this is an area where we all struggle with or, or we even choose to ignore. Because it seems not real that, that God would choose to act towards someone like this. I'm assuming that you're speaking about J.I. Packer here, Ben, and yes, I think we have to remember that God shapes his servants in extraordinary means. Uh, the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that whom he loves, he disciplines. And uh, the discipline is not punishment, but it is meant to shape us so that we might experience the greatest possible joy in eternity. So, you know, when Packer has been in eternity for, you know, all those years, uh, he will look back at that accident and say, this is how God shaped me and designed me so that I would take a greater interest in the things of God and maximize my joy here. So when we look at things only from the immediate, it seems harsh, but when we look at them from the eternal sense, it seems pleasing. Thanks again, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Ministry of Our Lord, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. A donor recently wrote, I decided to give because your ministry is one that can be trusted when it comes to teaching the Bible. It's really that simple. Well, this past month as a ministry, we placed an emphasis upon the critical importance of identifying Bible teaching you can trust. Well, this month, our hope is to reinforce the importance of not only identifying trustworthy teaching, embracing these truths and applying them to our lives, but the importance of sharing those life-changing truths with others. This month, we placed an emphasis on the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 11 for the purpose of restating our commitment to faithfully obeying the biblical charge to serve with all of our hearts and to teach the Bible with fervor. Our prayer is that you will join us in this effort as the fellowship of believers. Your gifts, your prayers are critical in this day and for this purpose. To offer a gift today or to find out about our new initiative, the 1119 Fellowship, visit backtothebible.ca or give us a call at 1-800-888-1119. 
663-2425.